band. Thank you, band. Well, today I am going to conclude, and yes, all the youth and the children can go downstairs now. You are, may, you are dismissed. A growing contingent of young ones learning about the Lord. Amen. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. We are wrapping up a series that I've been doing on the Sermon on the Mount. And for me, that's a special part of the Bible because in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew takes us through probably one of the most packed, full of, of beautiful teachings from the Lord, composed in a way that speaks beyond what is just said. The Sermon on the Mount is probably, I would say, a must-read, a must-understand for all Christians. Because in it are the teachings that you will hear Jesus when he is actually in ministry, going from place to place. And sometimes it is the first place that you hear some of the things that Jesus actually teaches is in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so beautiful. But let me, let me actually read. We're going to read the whole section because I have to finish it off. But here is what Matthew, and I just want to take you back to what we've been reading. Matthew has started off with chapter 5, and he says, And the crowds followed him up the mountain. And so what Matthew is creating a picture of is, you know, Jesus walking up this mountain by the Sea of Galilee. We're not talking like a mountain like in, you know, the Rocky Mountains, but a mountain that you can climb up a slope, by the, by the Galilean Sea. And there he is with hundreds or thousands of people before him. And the first thing he teaches is the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. It's the first thing he teaches. And the poor in spirit is, is such a powerful statement. It means that I understand how poor I am spiritually and how great God is and how that divide between who I am and who he is is so great that I can't even compare myself to anybody because I, I count myself as in the same boat as everybody else. And then Jesus begins to teach and he walks us through that we are called after the Beatitudes and, and having the Beatitudes be part of our ethos, part of who we are, every bone, every aspect of who we are, that then we start to become the salt and light of this world. Because people don't act the way we are called to act and behave and do as is in the Beatitudes. And then, right at the very apex of this sermon that he records is Lord's Prayer, Our Father. Before he teaches the disciples, he's already talking about it here in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we talked about the descent last time. 
and what it means to be the descent and the dangers of being caught up in the world. And then today, I'm going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount with the last section. And it's a large part of the section. But first, I'm going to read the entire thing, and then we'll break it down. Amen? Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his sons asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of and the prophets. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware! of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew 
and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority not as the scribes. Amen. Amen. It is interesting how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount and especially how Matthew takes great pains to make sure that he packs so much of that teaching into this last message encouragement and warning all mixed into that and a call for choice a choice that we have to make in our life and it talks about the narrow road but it's ironic we naturally don't like the narrow road we don't we naturally like to go where there's lots of us. We feel more comfortable where there's lots of people who are like us. <laughs> you know, when, when people talk about world religions, you know, sometimes I hear people talk about this, you know, at work or, or other places, and, and you, can, you can see some of the people say, well, Christianity is is the largest religion in the world. There are 2.2 billion Christians. That's a third of the world's population. Much bigger than 1.6 billion Muslims, or 1 billion Hindus, or 500 million Buddhists. We represent one third of the world. Does that make sense? Would it make sense that if what Jesus was talking about right now, if we live that way, will the world be like it is today if one-third of the world was actually Christian? I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's take a closer look at here in Canada. But there is something happening in the world. There is something happening. And we see it starting here in Canada, especially. In 1991, if you were to ask people who they affiliated with, what religion they affiliated with, in 1991, 83% of Canadians would say they are Christian. 83%. 1991. 
1991, no affiliation was 12%, almost 13. Now it's almost 35%. If the trend keeps going, Christianity or those who actually call themselves Christian or believe that they are Christian, or even if it's just culturally, will be a minority within the next 10 years. And at this trend, those with no affiliation will be the majority. But it's ironic because people say that we're actually becoming more spiritual. Spiritual at what? You know, today we were talking in the membership class and I was saying we're Pentecostal, right? And in the last 100 years, Pentecostalism in Canada has grown 900%. And yet in the last decade, Pentecostals and Evangelicals run from being about 10% to now 6%. Is that good? Is that bad? Maybe both. Maybe both. Because Scripture tells us that Jesus came and said to them, this is Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we have this dichotomy, this paradox, where in the world we have so many people who call themselves Christian, yet we don't see the fruits, right? We just heard the Sermon on the Mount. You will know them by their fruits. Well, I don't see the fruits in Canada, and I don't see the fruits in the world. Because if a third of the world was Christian, I would think we would see a very different world. And in Canada, we're seeing this decline. And yet we as a church are called to still go out into the streets, into the communities, into our neighbors, into our workplaces, and we are still called to be light and salt on the earth despite everything that is going on, we are still called to be out there. It reminds me of that saying, not a saying, it's actually a story of, of Moody. I've, I've said it before. <laughs> when Moody took over the church in Chicago, it was full. It was about two to three times the size of this church. It had about 1,000 to 2,000 people. And so Moody started teaching in, in, the, in the actual church. But you know what? I guess they were so used to how things used to be under the old pastor, they didn't like Moody. So all of a sudden, 1,000 turned to 900. 900 turned to 800. And it kept going, going, going until there was like less than 20. And so can you imagine this huge church That Moody took over, and we all know who Moody is. There's a Bible institute. He did so many great things that that many people would leave. 
just because of his teaching and his approach and way of doing things? So he went and he prayed to God and he said, Lord, how can this be? You brought me here. Why is this happening? You know what the Spirit spoke to him? Now, with the ones that are the remnant, now I will rebuild the church. Now my power will pour out on those 20. Now you will go into the streets again and I will fill this church and do many more great things. You see, numbers don't matter. We get hung up on numbers, statistics. Things are in decline or things are in an increase. God doesn't see it that way. We need to see it differently. But you see, we get in the way a lot of times, don't we? We do. Our human nature gets in the way. It's like Paul said, you know, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Even Paul, you know. I got a little story that sort of illustrates that. It's a Scottish story. Scottish story. An elderly Scottish woman was making her way through the countryside. Each time she came to a crossroads, she would toss a stick in the air. At one inter intersection, oh, wait a minute, she would toss a stick because she would let the stick direct her in which way to go. Okay? So she was at a crossroads. Do I go left or do I go right? I don't know. I'm going to throw the stick into the air. Where it drops, that way I'll go. At one intersection, however, an old man saw her. So she's doing this, and, there, and this old man is watching. And he noticed that she, was, she did it three times, which was perplexing because he had seen her do it before and only do it once. So the old man was curious. He went up to her and he said, Why are you throwing your stick like that? She squinted and replied, I'm letting God direct my journey by using this stick. So then he asked, well, why did you throw it three times? Because, she said, the first two times he was pointing me in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, it's funny, but sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes it's true. We get in the way that way. Lord, you're praying for one thing and it doesn't seem to get anywhere. See, Lord, you know, we keep knocking, right? So the Lord keeps consistently asking us. But maybe God is pointing in the other direction and we're not paying attention that he's pointing in the other direction because that's not the direction we want to go. But you know, this wasn't the only time where things went awry with people wanting to follow Christ. I mean, think about the crowds, right? When Jesus was around, right? So when he went onto the Sermon on the Mount and he preached and he came down, we just read it. They were astonished. They were wowed, right? Wowed. I mean, if you see the Hyundai uh, commercials, wow, you know, wow, wow, this is Jesus Christ, right? You know, in today's day, he'd have a lot of followers, a lot of likes. And everybody was, wow, did you see? He fed all those people with just such little food. Did you see all the healings and signs and wonders he did? 
that's what we want. We want to have something that wows us. <laughs> but when the rubber hits the road, when it really gets hard, what happens? What happens? Jesus said in, math, in Matthew, he said, sorry, it was in John chapter 6, he goes, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of loaves. And when Jesus started talking to them later on about what it meant to have the bread of life, And they completely misunderstood what he was talking about. You must eat of my body and drink of my blood. What happened? What happened? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see? When Jesus starts to really, really call us into a path that may be difficult, into a part of our life that maybe we don't want to go, keep throwing up the stick, Keep, keep going in the wrong direction. You know what I mean? You know that saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going? Well, most get out. Of, most, get out. most don't get going. And that's the reality. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane after he was arrested? What happened? Mark 14, 50. And they all left him and fled. So what is it about us that we're so quick to follow when we get it our way? We're so quick to follow when there's signs and wonders. We're so quick to follow when we're getting something. We're so quick to follow when God's direction lines up with my direction. But when it doesn't, Mm. that's when it's different and sometimes it's not even us choosing a direction sometimes it's even how we want things done right now I've heard it I don't know if we should do it that way or why don't we go and do it this way well at my old church we used to do it this way and Oh, what? I, where I came from, you know, we had it done this way. You know, sometimes we just want to even try and design how God does things. Not just the direction we choose. So I have a, a good story for you today. Another one. I'm going to ask you, would you rather be a shepherd or a consultant? A shepherd or a consultant? Because you guys know I'm a consultant, right? That's my day job. I'm a consultant. But in this story, I'd rather be the shepherd. Are you ready? A shepherd was herding his flocks in a remote pasture when suddenly a brand new Jeep advanced towards him out of the dust cloud. The driver, a young man in a suit, Gucci shoes, Ray-Ban glasses, and a designer tie, leans out of the window and asks, if I can tell you exactly how many sheep you have in your flock, 
Will you give me one? You know, it's funny because when I went to Ireland, I went to Ireland once, and actually the shepherds actually drive the jeeps. They don't actually walk. They sit there, they hang outside of the door, just a side note, and they actually whistle these whistles to the dog, and the dog runs. It was, it's a sight to see. If you ever go to Ireland, go to where they, the sheep, and you'll see it. It's, it's an amazing thing. Anyway, back to the story. The shepherd looks at the uh, yuppie, then, then at his peacefully grazing flock, and answers, sure. The yuppie parks the car, whips out his notebook, connects it to the cell phone, surfs to the NASA page, where he calls up a GPS navigation system, scans the area, opens a database, and some 60 spreadsheets with complex formulas. Finally, he prints a 150-page report on a miniature printer, turns to the shepherd and says, you have exactly 1,586 sheep. That's correct. Because as agreed, you can take one of the sheep. So the shepherd says the shepherd. He watches the young man make a selection, bundle it into his Cherokee. As the car starts to pull away, he calls out, if I can tell you exactly what your business is, will you give me my sheep back? Huh. Okay, why not, answers the young man stopping the car. This is what the shepherd says. You are a consultant, says the shepherd. That's correct, says the yuppie. How did you guess? Easy. You turn up here without being asked. You want to be paid for the information I already have. And you don't know anything about my business because you just took my dog. <laughs> you know, it's a funny story, but a lot of times, this happens in church. It really does. It really does. It happens with us. You see, we sometimes, because we tend to have a certain way of thinking about how things should be done. We all do. Okay? Let's admit it. We, I was just doing the membership class, and I was saying sometimes there are gray areas that we have where we might disagree or we might think that things should be done differently. And what happens is, when that happens, we start to think, well, maybe it should be done this way or that way. You know, maybe we should have more lights, you know, it should just be a seeker-friendly church. What should we do? And what happens when those things start to, to come about, we start taking our eyes off of what's really important. You see, our eyes, we should be the shepherds. We should be focusing more on the sheep. We should be focusing more on each other. Not on what gets done or how it gets done. You know, don't get me wrong. I love technology because I, I live it. I work with it every day. It's technology that allowed us to, you know, reach so many people during COVID. It would have been impossible. And even today, while we're all here, several hundred of us are here in this, in this room, there are hundreds of us online right now watching on Facebook and YouTube. So there's nothing wrong with doing things in a new way. But it's when we focus on the wrong things, it's when things go wrong. When Jesus 
said, feed my sheep to Peter. He wasn't just talking to Peter, he was talking to all of us. He was talking to the church. He was talking to us as believers. And we just read, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the ones who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, and you know, just because you might have the gift of preaching or evangelism or gifts, gifts of healing, of signs and wonders, just because all of those things have been given to you by the Lord does not guarantee that you are going to heaven. Now, I'm Pentecostal, and I believe that the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, when it works, will show all those things. But those things do not take us to heaven. And the warning, Jesus is warning us that it's not those things that will take us to heaven. Because you can be like the Scottish woman or the consultant and get it all wrong. And get it all wrong. The very fact that people call themselves a Christian and we have the kind of government we have in Ottawa right now, just, just, just saying. Just, I, I couldn't understand it. So the reality is that the majority of people who call themselves Christian aren't Christian. Let's just make the claim. Let's just be honest. Because when I was growing up as a Catholic, if you would ask me if I was a Christian, I'd say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But was I really? No. I hadn't surrendered my life to Christ. I haven't given everything that I have for him. He was just God somewhere in, in, in the sky that one day I'll meet. That's not what a Christian is. A, I was reading about a uh, Christian teacher who was in, in war in a part of the world not too long ago. Not much unlike what we're seeing today in Israel. And he wrote many books and papers and, and, they still, and he's still around today about forgiveness and the power of forgiveness and the need for us to forgive each other. And while he's giving this lecture at, at this university, and this wasn't too long ago, the enemy of his people were invading his land and murdering his villagers, raping the women, putting people into camps. All of this was going on as he was talking about forgiveness. And then somebody in the audience asked him, if your enemy came here right now, would you hug him and forgive him? And he confessed, I felt like saying no. But he paused himself. But he said, with Christ, I should be able to. 
And here's the crux of it. Whether the Scottish woman or the consultant or anything that we do, when our purpose is not to do the will of God and follow the call of God, everything else doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we have a perfect church that looks so beautiful. It doesn't matter that we have a beautiful backdrop. It doesn't matter that we have people online. If we're doing it because we're trying to be entertaining or because we want to be able to, you know, attract as many people as possible so that we can grow and build and do other things. As soon as we lose sight of why we're here and that numbers don't matter and that techniques don't matter, but only pursuing God's will and doing His will and His alone, which is to follow the Great Commission, to meet together as a body, to love one another, because that's how the world will know that we are His, by how we love one another, and no other way. And when we lose sight of that, everything else doesn't matter. You could have massive evangelistic gatherings. As Jesus said, you could have signs and wonders. But if your heart is in the wrong place, it doesn't matter. In fact, I propose this. Maybe it's a good thing a lot of people who thought they were Christian start to realize that they're not. In fact, maybe that's a good starting point. Because at least if people can start to be honest with themselves, actually, we can actually start to reach them for Christ. Because I tell you, if everybody thinks that they're Christian and they have no problem, that becomes an issue. Now, don't get me wrong. It's the, it's the Spirit of God that convicts. But we have a great commission and a call. We have a calling church. We're going to have membership class next week. What does that mean? That means that we come together as a church to do the will of God. Regardless of whether things are perfect, regardless of whether things are done the way you would like them done. You've been called here to love one another, to work with one another, to seek your gifts, to be part of the body, to build up, to help, to cry with each other, to feel pain with one another, to laugh, to rejoice, to be glad and thankful with one another. Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears my words and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Build your house on the rock, Jesus Christ. That is what the focus is. 
And this calling is to you today to rise up as a church, to unite. I know we all come and sit in pews and we don't know each other sometimes very well. We know some more than others. But you are brothers and sisters, regardless. You are all brothers and sisters. And when I look across this, this congregation, you all come from so many different parts in this world. And by the blood of Jesus, you've been all been brought together as brothers and sisters and family. Amen? I have an example here of what happens when you take your eye off what's important. Anybody know Pastor Paul Carter? He's a Baptist pastor at Cornerstone Church in Irelia. He also hosts a podcast called um, Into the Word. And this is his testimony. I began pastoring in September of 1994, right in the middle of the seeker-sensitive craze. He goes on, and I'm just taking excerpts, okay? He goes on to say, and the bottom line is that when you win people with what you have to keep people with, if you market yourself as a church for people who don't like church, then you can't do crunchy things without expecting significant pushback. And this is the first thing he started to realize. You see, he got caught up in the seeker frenzy craze. So, as you can tell, he's not a very big fan of seeker-friendly churches. In fact, he tried it twice at two different seeker-friendly churches. I'm not saying that all seeker-friendly churches are going to be like the examples that he gave. But the examples that he gives are exactly about examples of what it is between the difference between being the shepherd and being the consultant. And you see... In a seeker-friendly church, you're trying to attract people who don't like church, people who don't want to go to church. And so when you try to actually do church things like teach the Bible, you get pushback, is what he's saying. And so seeker-friendly churches are growing and they're attracting thousands and thousands of people. He goes on to say, this is why most secret churches never manage to exit the theological merge lane. If you sell them on Christianity light, you then need to continue to offer Christianity light week after week. You preach for five minutes, ten minutes, maybe you'll go a long way and preach for 15 minutes. Wow, that's a long time. Maybe you'll read a verse. Maybe not. Maybe I'll quote some wise person. The seeker movement seemed to assume that the strong people had received our portion of grace and now we needed to starve ourselves in order to feed others. So here's the assumption he's saying. In the two seeker-friendly churches, very different churches, he went under very different pastors, both had the same problem. You see, this is what they assume. We're going to bring all these people who don't like church and aren't familiar with church. And we're going to attract a lot of church people too. 
But we're going to give them Christianity light. And our hope is that through reverse osmosis, that the church people will teach the unchurched people. That's the model. They've thought very well of how to run these churches. The problem, he says, is that there's such a huge gap between the church and the unchurched. In seeker churches that I was part of, excellence was a very important concept. It wasn't about the word. It was about excellence. It wasn't about salvation. It was about excellence. Why? Because we've got to attract people. Our purpose is to attract people. And by attracting people, we hope that by coming, that they'll listen, they'll receive the word, and convert. Have you heard this before? I have. It's called the Catholic Church. It's called the Calvinist Church. Because back in Sweden when it started, they actually put laws into place. Protestant areas of Europe that forced people to come to church. You know what the justification is? Make everybody come to church because if they come to church, whether they like it or not, maybe they'll hear the word of God, maybe they'll be transformed, and maybe their lives will be transformed. This isn't a new idea. It's been tried many times. He goes on to say, we wanted to honor the Lord with excellent announcements, excellent lighting, excellent sound, excellent seating, excellent signage, and excellent programs. That was the focus. The best lights, the best sound systems. You know, people would go on training. Probably even the pastors went on training to figure out how to be better speakers, oratory. Study the arts of rhetorical discussion so that you can memorize the people. Put on costumes, do things on stage. Excellence, excellence, excellence. Put on a Christmas show that is unbelievable. Wow, this church really does an awesome job. Look at the lighting. Look at the sound. I'm not saying that doing your best for the Lord when you can do your best is not the right thing to do if you can do it. But if that is your central focus, you've missed the boat. You've missed the boat. Two churches. You see, he'd first all, maybe I go to a secret friend, maybe the first one was wrong. I got it all wrong. I'll go to another one and pastor at that one and see how things are there. They didn't change. It didn't change. He goes, another primary assumption of the seeker movements is that unchurched people need, to ha need a different sort of ministry than do church people. So church people need the Bible, enter small groups, and unchurched people need sermonettes on topics of immediate concern, 
Enter the Sunday morning variety show, he says. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Isn't that true? So yes, you come to Logos, you're going to be for an hour here, at least. Hearing the word of God. You'll probably hear 10 to 20 or more different pieces of scripture. And it's not easy, because our bodies, even you go to lecture, I remember what it was like in school. After 20 minutes, you're like, my goodness, I got to concentrate. I gotta, it's, it's not easy. It's not. You got, you got to work at it. And I know that, you know, that by the time you leave, you'll retain 10 to 25% of what you heard. It's true. But I'm not worried about that. Because my focus is to do the Lord's will and to preach to you what he has put on my heart to preach to you. And if your mind can't remember it, your spirit will. Why? Because the spirit of God is working with your spirit and working with you. And when you're out there in the week and something comes up and you don't remember it, but the Lord reminds you and it could have been something that was said on Sunday morning and it comes to you and it's for you to use where you are, that is the Spirit working. And I might have messed up. I might have missed a, a line. That doesn't matter because the Spirit is the one who's excellent, not me. It is the Spirit and Christ who are excellent and who will guide you. They are the ones that are teaching you right now, not me. They are the ones that are solidifying the Spirit of God is solidifying what you need to hear, what you need to take with you today. And it's not about excellence. <laughs> Last week, when the pastor was talking about the, uh, you know, the evils of Halloween, and, and the noise started coming through, remember that? Uh, that wasn't excellent, was it? It's a spiritual battle. And it continues. You know, that isn't the only time. We found things outside of, of Wicca things trying to, to attack the church. Drawings on walls. Just this week. You see, when the Spirit is at work, not only are you reaching lives, but you are taking back territory from the enemy. It's not about excellence. It never is and it never should be. He goes on to say that the Bible seems to indicate that it is how saved people grow. Jesus prayed for that, for that very thing. Sanctify them in truth, for the word is truth. Pastor Carter just laments at how little the word was preached. And the fruits, we just talked about the fruits, you will know them by their fruits. Remember that? He goes on to make this claim, and this is now two churches that he spent many years at. Very different seeker-friendly churches. I don't remember encountering anyone who had been previously unchurched, who came 
to one of our accessible and relevant Sunday service, services who became a true follower of Jesus Christ. Thousands of people who transitioned into a supportive small group and then became a multiplying and ministering disciple. Not one. That is shocking. He goes like this, I do remember, however, meeting lots of previously churched people who had left their more traditional church, right, fellowships, because we had better music, lower expectations, and shorter services. In my experience, he says, the seeker movement was less of a front door and more of a back door. It was a soft landing for nominal Christians on their way out of evangelical church. And we're seeing a shift in the church. We are. And since the 90s, as the seeker movement grew. Now we're starting to see the progressive movement. So what happens when people don't have the word of God? What happens when people are encouraged to read the word of God? When they don't hear the word of God? They don't understand what it says. They don't understand how to apply it. So where's the transformation? See, the spirit works with what you hear. And if you don't read and hear, you're going to be like the Scottish woman. That's the direction I want to go in. He goes on to say that he's left the seeker movement. He's now a pastor of a small church. He says he's actually returning to his childhood roots. He goes, his current church isn't sexy, isn't com- contemporary, but it's church. And he goes, I am so thankful for it, and I continue to believe deeply in it. Here I stand, and by the grace of God, I will do no other. Here is a testimony of a man who's dedicated his life as a pastor, who went down a road of seeking excellence, thought he had maybe done it wrong once and went to a different church and it was the same thing all over again are there seeker friendly churches out there that maybe are converted I would hope so and maybe you know some but the one thing I do know is that when church starts to reduce the word to 15 minutes and one scripture when the church starts to focus on lights and sound and don't get me wrong we love to invest in things that are going to allow us to worship together as a church do you see that you know if you know we have these musicians that come here they're volunteers if they get a note wrong do you notice why? Because you're focused on Christ when you worship. 
and that's what it should be. I have heard people, and I've heard many other pastors say this, I have heard people who sing with perfect pitch and who are professional singers in church, and I don't feel the spirit. And then I've heard people who aren't professional, they might not have perfect pitch, but their heart is so on fire for God, there's tears coming out of their eyes, and the worship that they give inspires everybody in the audience. That is the church that God is calling. That is what Jesus was trying to get through to us on the Sermon on the Mount. And you see, he tells us how, to, how we should do that. He does. We read it. So let's go to it. Matthew 7, 7 is where I started. And Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For whoever asks receive, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. You see, if we have our hearts in the right place, and we're seeking God, see that? It's seek, right? Ask, knock, it's a process. It's not something we do once. It's something we do over and over again in many different ways. We need to hear the will of God in our lives. Isn't that what John teaches? If you pray what the will of the Father is, he will hear you, right? And if he hears you, he will answer your prayer. Ask, seek, knock, and we need to do that as a church. We need to come together as a church in prayer, and we do. And we need to have a prayer life, and we need to seek God. And here, here's where Jesus gives one of the most interesting, and I have a picture for you. I have a picture for you. I'm going to jump to number 13, verse 13, and Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Right? When the going gets tough, the tough get going, but there's so few of us. <laughs> but for the gate that is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those are few, it says. The narrow gate and the narrow way. Could you, in the media room, put on the title page? All right. Do you see this path? It's a narrow path. Now there's one person who has the red hat and one person who has the blue hat. One person is relaxed and the other is a little nervous. Can you notice? I think we'd all be nervous if we were standing on the edge like that. Do you see the holes in the concrete there? You know what that pathway is called? The King's Pathway. It's in Spain. The King's Pathway.
You can take one of those nice, wide highways with toll booths. You know, the asphalt is nice and paved. Or maybe you want to go on the side of a mountain, but you're all inside a nice, nice cage. You know, like when you go to the CN Tower, you're high up, but you know, everything's protected. But what Jesus is calling us to is not an easy road. He calls it the hard way. It isn't easy. Life isn't easy on the narrow path. Taking his load, my yoke is easy, is different than going on the hard path. And it's going to get harder and harder and harder. You think it's going to be easier? At my work, it is getting harder and harder to be a Christian. In schools, Christian teachers are getting harder and harder to be teachers. I read a story of someone who was just kicked out of a restaurant because they started talking about Jesus. We are going to start to see the narrow way. Are you ready? Are you ready, church? Are you ready for the narrow way? Are you ready to do what it takes to reach people, to change, to die to self, to not need sticks to guide you where you're going, to not seek excellence? You don't need a GPS to count the sheep. Let God do that. And isn't it interesting that Matthew picks one of the teachings that Jesus says in 12, verse 12. So if you enter the narrow gate, if you seek, ask, and knock, you will be given, you will find, and you will open. And in verse 12 he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He inserts that right in there. He starts off by saying, seek, seek, knock, ask, enter the narrow path. And in the middle, he puts this little teaching. Remember what I've said. When you see an insertion like that that actually looks so odd in Scripture, it's for a purpose. There's a point to that Scripture. <laughs> There's a story that I think will illustrate this. Because it all starts with us. God needs to work in us. God needs to change us so that we can be his instrument. So that we can, and that's what the narrow path is. The narrow path isn't easy. It's going to test things that we like to do that we now need to change. It's going to make us uncomfortable. Let me tell you a story about a teacher and a student. A teacher named Miss Thompson who teaches fourth grade students. Teddy was slow, unkept student, a loner shunned by his classmates. The previous year, his mother died. And what little motivation for school he may have, have once was now gone. Miss Thompson didn't particularly care for Teddy either, because at Christmas time, he brought her a small present, 
Her desk was covered with well-wrapped presents from the other children, but Teddy's came in a brown sack. When she opened it, there was a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. The children began to snicker, but Miss Thompson saw the importance of the moment. You see, here is a Christian woman who had some attitude problems, let's just face it, at seeing some students as better than others. She quickly splashed, oh sorry, the children began to snicker, but Miss Thompson saw the importance of the moment. That's the spirit working. She quickly splashed on some perfume and put on the bracelet, pretending Teddy had given her something special. At the end of the day, Teddy worked up enough courage to softly say, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother. And her bracelet looks real pretty on you too. I'm glad you like my presence. After Teddy left, Miss Thompson got down on her knees and prayed for God's forgiveness. She prayed God to use her as she sought to not only teach these children, but to love them as well. She became a new teacher. She lovingly helped students like Teddy, and by the end of the year, he had caught up with most of the students. Miss Thompson didn't hear from Teddy from a long, for a long time after that. Then she received a note. Dear Mrs. Thompson, I want you to be the first to know I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stallard. Four years later, she received another note. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I will be graduating first in my class. I want you to be the first to know the university was not, has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stallard. Four years later, dear Mrs. Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stallard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I am getting my, married next month. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You are the only family I have now. Daddy died last year, love, Teddy Stallard. Miss Thompson went to the wedding and sat where Teddy's mother would have sat because she let God use her as an instrument of kindness and compassion. The focus wasn't on excellence anymore. The focus wasn't on her and what's best for her. The focus was on the other on those in need, on those who need to hear the word of God. That was the focus. That is our focus. That is your focus. That is why we're here on this earth. This life is very, very short. A million, a billion, a trillion years from now, What's 80, 90 years? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'd like to finish with this. Paul. 
Paul as the example. Now, it's believed from what is written by Paul that he was actually not a very good speaker. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, it says this, For they say his letters are weighty and strong. So he wrote great letters. That he did. He wrote great letters. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Wow. Could you think that Paul was bad at speaking? Not have a strong presence? Can you imagine that? Paul wrote all the letters. Look at this. He even admits it himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And when I came to you, brothers, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom? Did I? Is that what he's asking? Did I come to you with lofty speech and wisdom? Did I? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So no lofty words, no fancy rhetoric. Because in his time, that would have been the lights and the sound system, you know. Because there was a certain way of speaking that people really liked. He didn't come to them that way. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Do you see that? When he came, he didn't come full of confidence. He came in weakness and trembling. Which is why we read in 1 Corinthians 10.10 that they thought his speeches of no account. So what made the difference? What made the difference? We read it on. Let's continue to read. Number four, verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So what did he say? My speech and my words were not grandiose. But in demonstration of the Spirit and power. What? In demonstration. The word demonstration is important here. Of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, what Paul knew is that it didn't matter how great a speaker he was. People loved his letters, but not his speaking so much. And he had the money and time to go and learn from the best speakers in the world if he wanted to. But more importantly, he only wanted one thing, and that is to preach the word and to preach Christ. And not in his power, not in his excellence, by the demonstration of the Spirit and power. You see, we need the Spirit of God working in our lives and in a big way. Yes, we were talking actually about this downstairs. Yes, we, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Spirit brings us into the body. 
Yes, that is true. You are saved. And the Spirit starts to live in you. But the power of the Spirit to use you more and more and more doesn't just come by just saying, I'm saved. And stopping at that. You see, the power of the Spirit is when the Spirit comes into your life and overtakes your life and your life becomes surrendered and the flow of the power of God starts flowing into you more and more and more and you become overflowed. And for some of you, and as Paul said, I hope for all of you, that you would be so filled and so overflowed that you would even lose consciousness of what's going on. That is what Paul is talking about. Demonstrated. It's the signs of what happened when he would come and speak. It's the work of the Spirit in your life, in your heart, as he speaks, that counts. Not fancy words, fancy lights. The perfect setting. Is the Spirit working in your life now? Is the Spirit touching you now? Do you want the power of the Spirit in your life? Do you want the power of the Spirit to overflow? Do you want it to flow through you in such a big way that you cannot even understand what's going on? The Spirit has been working for a long time. Gregory, a Christian from the 4th century, the 4th century, says this. says this. This about the Spirit. Christ is born. The Spirit is his forerunner. Christ is baptized. The Spirit bears witness. Christ is tempted. The Spirit leads him. Christ ascends. The Spirit takes his place. What great things are there in the character of God which are not found in the Spirit? What titles which belong to God are also not applied to the Spirit? He is called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of liberty, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counseling, of might, of knowledge, of godliness, and fear of God. The Bible says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is the treasure? What is the treasure, people? Who are the jars of clay? You. You've been made from dirt and dust. You are the jars of clay. And the treasure in you is the Spirit of God. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the second part of the verse. Without the Spirit, there can be no power. Without surrendering the Spirit, there can be overflowing. And I end with this. And if I can call up the band. 
right after we are called jars of clay and we are told that the power belongs to God and not to us. The next verse, second three and four, says this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The narrow way is our way. That is the path we are called. And you cannot do it without the power of the Spirit in your life. Just as Paul knew he couldn't do it without the power of the Spirit. So I have a question for you. Please stand. Please stand. If you want this for your life, I want to hear an amen, okay? Do you want more Christ in your life? Do you want more power in your life? Power of the Spirit, not your own, right? Do you want the Spirit to be overflowing your life in a way like you've never experienced before? Do you willing to surrender to the Spirit? To follow the Spirit's direction, even if it doesn't feel like it's the right way to go? Oh, the amens are starting to get a little lower. Come on. Let's just completely surrender. I love you guys. I do. And I, my desire is for you to know the Word of God in a way that maybe you've never ever had before. Because the Word of God with the Spirit in you is so powerful. Who cares if the statistics are saying that Christianity is declining? God doesn't look at numbers. We're growing. We're growing inside. It's the power of the Spirit in your lives. It's the power of the Spirit in your lives. Everyone beside you is your brother and sister. Love them. Cherish them. And let your love flow to other people. Let the people across your life see a difference and say, you're weird, but I love what I see. Let them say that. That's okay. I want to be weird in that way. I do. Let's bow our heads. Now maybe some of you are feeling like you know, maybe, maybe I, I've, I've held back. And I don't want to hold back anymore. I want to open up the sails of this boat and let the wind just push me into any direction it wills. If you feel like this, just raise your hand. All eyes are closed, just raise your hand in the church. Say, I want more power of the Spirit. Yes, thank you. Yes, amen, hallelujah, yes. Yes, thank you. Amen. Hallelujah. Just say, Lord, I'm here. I'm willing. I'm ready. I want more. I need more of you. It is the power of the Spirit. And only the power of the Spirit in Christ Jesus 
that can do what Paul did because you know what? What Paul achieved, you can achieve by the will and strength and power of the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you for all the hands that went up. We see a church here, Lord. We are yours. We gather here, this humble place. None of us see ourselves as perfect, but you are perfect. You are wonderful. And you have given us your spirit. And Lord, for those who put up their hands and those in their hearts who also cried out, I pray a special blessing go upon them, Lord, that the Spirit would pour down in a new way and give them strength and power as Paul had, that wherever believers went, people knew, people changed, there was transformation. We love you, Lord. We are your clay. You are the potter. Mold us. And I thank you and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Josh.